question of the week. Does Donald Trump know everyone can hear him when he speaks in interviews and at campaign events? The former president continues to incriminate himself as his allies in the House run interference with a bogus impeachment inquiry. Congressman Jamie Raskin is here to weigh in on all of it, and he's coming up first. Plus, in a remarkable new filing, Jack Smith asks a federal judge to impose a limited gag order on Trump. Our in-house law firm of Weissman and Katiel is back, standing by with reaction. Also today, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal on what was perhaps the most factual thing Trump said in an interview on Meet the Press. Republicans have no idea how to talk about abortion rights. And later, Mitt Romney announces he won't run for re-election. And you better believe he's naming names on the way out. So there is some very important context to consider when it comes to Kevin McCarthy's pursuit of an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And that is the 91 criminal counts and four criminal trials facing the likely Republican nominee for 2024. Trials about paying hush money to a porn star, hoarding nuclear secrets, and trying to overturn an election. Trials that will involve lots of hard evidence, lots of witnesses, and in at least one case, a YouTube live stream of the proceedings. That will be the dominant storyline of this campaign, in part because Donald Trump refuses to talk about almost anything else. He has relentlessly attacked prosecutors in the justice system in sit-down interviews on Truth Social and on the campaign trail. And all along, Jack Smith has been listening, clearly. The special counsel is now seeking a gag order against Trump in his election interference case. So if the judge issues that order, Trump's going to have to resort to some of his other go-to strategies, like getting his cronies to do his dirty work for him. He's tried that in the past. House Republicans did get a bit of a head start this week by launching their baseless impeachment inquiry into President Biden. In an interview that just aired on Meet the Press, Trump said he had nothing to do with it. Did you talk to Speaker McCarthy about this House impeachment inquiry? No, no, I don't talk to him. Did you tell him that he should open a House No, no, I don't do that. I don't think he'd do that. I mean, he wouldn't do it based on me, no. Did you talk to your Republican allies on Capitol Hill and say you should support this impeachment No, I don't have to talk. They're more proactive than I am. They think it's terrible. I will say this. They think I was treated very unfairly. Whatever Trump says... We all know this is largely happening because of him. And don't just take my word for it. Ultra-conservative Congressman Ken Buck said, quote, directly or indirectly, this impeachment inquiry was a result of President Trump's pressure. Of course it was. Just look at what we already know. The former president has been speaking weekly with House GOP conference chair, uh, chairwoman Elise Stefanik, who just so happened to be the first member of Republican leadership to come out in support of impeachment. Coincidence? I think not. The New York Times also reported that Trump has been talking regularly by phone with members of the House Freedom Caucus and other congressional Republicans who pushed for impeachment. And just days before Kevin McCarthy's announcement, Trump had dinner with the speaker. I mean, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, otherwise known as. The menu included halibut, Diet Coke, and reportedly talk of impeaching a political rival. On the record, Marjorie Taylor Greene even told the New York Times that she relayed to Trump she wanted the impeachment inquiry to be, quote, long and excruciatingly painful for Joe Biden. I'm not even sure that is saying the quiet part out loud because this has all been so incredibly loud. We know what's going on here. The truth is, this is an inquiry in search of a pretext, in search of a purpose. And it's not as if the orchestrators are even hiding that. 
This is about transparency and answers for the American people and ultimately accountability for what I believe will uncover the biggest political corruption scandal in our nation's history. Will uncover. That is the key phrase there. There is not a single solitary shred of evidence at this point to support anything resembling a high crime or a misdemeanor on the part of Joe Biden. And it's not like they haven't been looking. They have been hunting for the past nine months. House Republicans have been investigating Biden and his family. They've issued subpoenas. They've obtained thousands of bank records, promised explosive revelations, and they have yet to find any actual wrongdoing. So, If there isn't any actual evidence and it isn't about facts, what is it all about? Well, James Comer gave us a hint way back in May. You look at the polling and right now, Donald Trump is seven points ahead of Joe Biden and trending upward. Joe Biden's trending downward. And I believe that the media is looking around, scratching their head, and they're realizing that the American people are keeping up with our investigation. Polling. Just a blatant admission right there that what they're doing is about poll numbers. And just a few days ago, Donald Trump himself said, quote, they did it to me. I think had they not done it to me, perhaps you wouldn't have it being done to them. There you have it. This has been the game all along. The score was kind of determined for the kickoff. This is not about high crimes and misdemeanors. It's not about congressional oversight. This is about politics and it's about payback. In the words of Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's about inflicting pain on President Biden. This is about Republican revenge for Trump's own impeachments. This is about Donald Trump himself trying to knock his political opponent down a peg. Once upon a time, I'm sure you remember this, he did try to pressure the Ukrainian president into digging up dirt on Biden. This time, he's just found some more willing participants. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland. He's the ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. Congressman, it's great to see you this afternoon. Great to be with you, Jen. Before we get to impeachment, there's a lot to discuss there. I do want to ask you about the gag order that Jack Smith is seeking on Trump. And Trump's response was to say Jack Smith was, quote, wants to take away my rights under the First Amendment. You're an expert on such things. Explain to us what is wrong with that argument. Well, uh, what Jack Smith is asking for is, of course, standard in courtrooms uh, across the country where uh, there are various limitations put on what different parties to a case can say in order not to prejudice the jury pool or otherwise compromise the proceedings. Um, So it's not a First Amendment question. Now, moving on to impeachment, uh, which obviously was big news on the Hill uh, this past week, Trump denies involvement in this impeachment effort. We heard him say that in a Meet the Press interview this morning. But do you think this would really be happening if Trump didn't want it to happen, given the reliance of so many leaders on him and the party? No more than I think that the January 6th insurrection would have happened in the absence of Donald Trump's uh, insistence and direction. He obviously is at the center of the whole thing. Um, His wounded pride will not allow him to run for president against Joe Biden as a twice impeached, four times indicted um, former president looking at 91 criminal charges if he couldn't say that the other guy has been impeached, too. It's pretty much as simple as that. And damn the evidence. Who cares whether there's no high crime or misdemeanor? It's just within the power of the House majority from Trump's perspective to deliver. 
You're the ranking uh, Democrat on the Oversight Committee, a very busy job. You've talked about what they've requested for and what they've gotten in the past. Republicans on the committee are really leaning into what they think they'll uncover from bank records. They've already obtained thousands of them, and correct me if I'm wrong there, but is there anything they haven't had access to that they've requested? No. In fact, uh, Chairman Comer has repeatedly boasted that he's gotten 100 percent of everything that he was looking for in terms of subpoenaed documents and witnesses in order to prove to his party that he's been doing his job. He's been saying, I've gotten everything I'm looking for. And we've looked at uh, 12,000 pages worth of bank documents, 2,000 SARS reports, suspicious activity reports, uh, tons of witnesses who've come in, including um, the president's bookkeeper and uh, Hunter Biden's business partner, uh, Devin Archer. And so there's no shortage of evidence. There's overwhelming evidence. It's just it's evidence of absence of culpability on the part of Joe Biden for any crime you can imagine. They haven't laid a glove on him. So if they go forward with this ridiculous impeachment, we will make them demonstrate what are the factual building blocks of it. I think a lot of them, including Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, would love to rush this thing to the floor so they can all make a, a bunch of phony speeches. Um, but there's no evidence there. So we're going to say, all right, um, if this is uh, really about high crimes and misdemeanors. Show us the evidence. What is the factual evidence? What are you talking about? If they had a single factual episode that demonstrated the high crimes and misdemeanors that they're alleging, everybody would know about it. But there's just nothing there. They're completely empty handed. So we'll put them to the test. Yeah, fa facts to back up an impeachment feels very reasonable, Congressman. Uh, President Trump also told NBC's Kristen Welker that it is, quote, very unlikely he'll pardon himself, but that he could have when he was president. Let's take a listen to that. Mr. President, if you were reelected, would you pardon yourself? I could have pardoned myself. Do you know what? I was given an option to pardon myself. I could have pardoned myself when I left. People said, would you like to pardon yourself? I had a couple of attorneys that said, you can do it if you want. I said, I would never give myself a pardon. Even if you were reelected in this moment? Well, I think it's very unlikely. What, what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. What do you, I mean, he, there's been so much reporting, Congressman, about why he's running, his team, and have said why they think he's running. What do you make of this claim that he says it's unlikely he would pardon himself? Well, I'm sure John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani uh, have been advising him that he can render a self-pardon. I mean, he can surround himself with whatever kind of legal sycophants he wants to tell him that. But it cuts against the cardinal principle of the judicial system, uh, as James Madison laid it out in the Federalist Papers, where he said that um, the premise of our law is that no man, no person can be a judge in his own cause, in his own case. And of course, that's a recipe for authoritarianism and fascism, because at that point, he could not only try to overthrow an election and the Constitution, as he's advised several times, he can brag about it and then pardon himself for his crime. So I think that the I would hope the entire judiciary and the American people would rebel against such an obnoxious mm. concept. Also on the subject of pardons, uh, I want you to listen to what Trump told NBC about pardoning members of the Proud Boys. Proud Boys 
uh, leader Enrique Tarrio was sentenced to 22 years in jail. Now that you know what the sentence is, 22 years yeah. in jail, will you give him a pardon? Will Are you, you give other Proud Boys a pardon? I don't know him. I never met him. I never heard of him until I started reading this Will stuff. you pardon him? But I want to tell you, he and other people have been treated horribly. Will you pardon him? In Minneapolis, I'd certainly look at it. I'd look at that and I'd look at all the other people that have suffered, the J6 people. I mean, Enrico Torrio, which you know well, is a leader of the insurrection, part of the problem, to state it mildly. Trump certainly tried to dodge it there. He didn't say no, but what did you make of his answer and how concerning is that to you? I mean, it's predictable, but utterly outrageous and scandalous. You've got a former president of the United States who's running for president saying that he will consider, thereby telegraphing his real intent to all of his followers, pardoning people who've been convicted of seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States. And of course, Trump set all of those events into motion with his determination to overthrow the 2020 presidential election, to void out Joe Biden's victory by more than 7 million votes in 306 to 232 in the Electoral College. And now he's further giving aid and comfort to the insurrectionists by promising them, or at least uh, heavily intimating, that he will give them a pardon for what they did. Um, so we are up against exactly the same kind of authoritarianism um, that we witnessed on January 6th. And America needs to understand we're just in the middle of this struggle. We're not over it in any sense. I know, you know, there's a way in which the the Republicans' opposition to Trump's impeachment or conviction, except for a noble 10 members in the House and seven in the Senate, that their opposition was a tragedy. And there's a temptation to look at all of this as a farce. Um, but it is a farce that could bring the republic to its knees. Um, and I would much rather see the dissolution of the Republican Party than the U.S. Constitution in the American Republic. Uh, before I let you go, Congressman, I wanted to ask you, because you were recently asked about Kamala Harris being on the ticket as the vice president. You've been such a supporter of the Biden-Harris agenda and presidency and vice presidency. Are you confident in the ticket? And how do you feel about the vice president remaining on the ticket? That, great. I feel excellent about that. And there should be no confusion about it. I think um, someone was trying to get me to pick a fight with uh, my friend Nancy Pelosi, which I'm not going to do. We're all behind the Biden-Harris administration, which has delivered spectacular, remarkable victories in a $1.2 trillion in infrastructure of America, in the Inflation Reduction Act, in dramatic reductions in healthcare costs for the American people in the Medicare program, in real climate um, change uh, advocacy and um, defense against the nightmare of, uh, the, the, of climate change. So we've been making tremendous progress under Biden-Harris, and we're all for the ticket. Um, and, you know, I know, again, there seems to be an effort to say, well, if there's chaos on the Republican side, there's got to be chaos on the Democratic side. There's not. Um, and I think that uh, Biden and Harris have done a remarkable job against all the political odds as they face a rule or ruin faction 
within the Republican Party, which arrived at work this last week with just three goals. One, to shut down the government of the United States. Two, to impeach the president of the United States. And three, to overthrow the speaker of the United States. So Congressman, it's like— uh, Alfred that, Pennyworth said in, in Batman, some, some men just like to burn everything down. <laughs> no way to end than on Batman. Congressman Jamie Raskin, always a pleasure. Thank you for always reminding us what's important. And coming up after Jack Smith requests a gag order on Donald Trump, the former president basically dares the judge to impose one. Andrew Weissman and Neil Katyal join me next. Plus, Republicans speak very inarticulately about abortion. Trump's words, not mine. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal joins me with reaction to that. And later, stunning revelations and reflections on the Republican Party as Mitt Romney announces his retirement. We're just getting started today and we'll be right back. Okay, I have so many questions about Jack Smith's request for a gag order against Donald Trump in the election interference case. What are the odds the judge agrees to it? If she does, how will it be enforced? If Trump defies it, what happens to him? Is jail actually on the table? I can't think of two better people to discuss all the implications than my next guest. You know them well. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel for the FBI. Neil Katyal is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. And the law firm joins me now. Okay, we have so much to get to. But, Neil, I just want to start with this gag order request, because I think all of us lay people are wondering, what's the judge going to do and what are the consequences? So what, what factors is she looking at? So the prosecutor, Jack Smith, is saying to the court, look, this defendant, Donald Trump, is running his mouth in really dangerous ways, prejudicing the jury pool, prejudicing witnesses and the like. And so Jack Smith has filed this piece of paper saying, hey, stop him from doing this. And it goes back to a 1976 Supreme Court case called Nebraska Press Association versus Stewart. And basically the question is, is Jack Jack Smith's limited request here limited enough mm -hmm. uh, to gag uh, Donald Trump? And I suspect the answer is yes, that he will prevail in this in some limited way. And that's because Jack Smith wrote a very narrow, restrained document, one that just said, look, if he's going to be attacking witnesses or attacking court personnel, that goes too far. I think the next step is for the judge to have a hearing where Donald Trump sits in that courtroom, looks at her in the eye, and explains himself. And then from there, some sort of tailored remedy, including possibly moving the trial data. Wow. Okay. So, Andrew, I mean, the, he has until, I be, believe, next Friday, if I'm remembering correctly, to respond, or his team does. What are the consequences? I mean, Donald Trump does not change his behavior easily. Is jail an option here if he violates it? Jail is an option, but I don't think that would be the first thing that, or even the second thing that the judge would do. I think as, as Neil uh, alluded to, Judge Tutkin has already said that if you continue to engage in this kind of behavior, not just prejudicing the jury, but inflaming uh, the public in ways that could be um, could lead to violence, that she could move the trial up. She also could fine the defendant. She could also impose restrictions that are overseen by his own counsel before he engages, for instance, in truth social posts. Now, there's, there are a variety of options. I should make sure people know this is a standard thing um, mm -hmm. in high-profile matters, entering these orders. We had them routinely 
in special counsel Mueller's cases. Um, and it's because you want to make sure that the jury is deciding the facts uh, based on what happens in court. And you notice the asymmetry in terms of what's going on, where you don't hear a peep from the government, but you do hear sort of ad nauseum from the defendant. So uh, th this is so fascinating. It'll be interesting to watch. I wanted to ask you about an exchange that Kristen Welker, uh, the new moderator of Meet the Press, had with Trump that stuck out to me. Mm -hmm. um, so let's play that, and then we're going to talk about it on the other side. So you called some of your outside lawyers. You said they had crazy theories. Why were you listening to them? Were you listening to them because they were telling you what you wanted to hear? You know who I listened to myself? I saw what happened. I watched that election, and I thought the election was over at 10 o'clock in the evening. So this is interesting because he's oh, they've been using this advice of counsel argument. So what did you think about that exchange, Neil? So, so Jen, anyone who's any critic of Kristen Walker, meet the press, who's like, oh, she's not making news. She just made huge news this morning because Donald Trump's defense to January 6th has been one basic thing, which is I relied on the advice of my lawyers. I didn't have bad criminal intent. It's my lawyers who were telling me to do this. And she got him through masterful interviewing and playing to his ego to be like, oh, no, I did it all myself. Yeah. And if you're Jack Smith this morning, you're going, thank you. That's what I always thought. And yes, you hired these kind of cockamamie, crazy lawyers. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, this was you through and through. This demonstrates his you know, culpability right there and then. And I think makes this case uh, that Judge Chutkin has going to trial on March 4th a lot easier. So, Andrew, if you're Jack Smith's team, what are you doing? Is that footage going to be played in the courtroom, do you think? It could be. Um, just to add to um, Neil's excellent point, the other thing that uh, Kristen Walker uh, got the president to say was essentially a part of this scheme, a part of the obstruction, a part of the 241 civil rights scheme, which is the stop of the electoral count. If you'll remember, everyone thought there'd be a red mirage, that, that, that the night of the election, Trump would be ahead because the mail-in votes had not been counted. And sure enough, Trump had said, stop counting. Well, that's a crime. Um, he was saying at the time, and he just said it on air to NBC, stop counting the votes. Well, that's not allowed. Um, that yeah. is part of the scheme here. So there's sort of a twofer here. One, um, as Neil said, um, not relying on counsel, and two, saying that he wanted to stop the votes of American citizens. So before I let you go, I wanted to ask you, the other piece of news this week was about Hunter Biden's federal indictment. Um, I know Andrew has said he's never seen this sorts of federal gun charges in his 21 years as a prosecutor. But what did you make of them? And do you think more is coming? So first of all, I've never seen Republicans so excited about enforcing gun control I laws. Know. In my life. That? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but um, I think Andrew's been absolutely right. These aren't cases that go to criminal prosecution with jail time normally. And that's, of course, what the deal was before between Hunter mm -hmm. Biden and this uh, and the prosecutor. And somehow that fell apart. And that prosecutor's not explained why he's now turning around. But a month ago, no jail time was totally cool with him. Now, all of a sudden, very same crimes. He now wants it. And, and maybe there's an explanation. I think, you know, we let's see that. Let's let that play out and so on. But right now I'm left more confused and perplexed than anything. 
Neil Katyal, Andrew Weissman, thank you both as always. Uh, and coming up next, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal on a looming government shutdown as her Republican colleagues trade F-bombs behind closed doors. And later, Mitt Romney says there's one Republican senator he could not disrespect more. We'll tell you who and break down the refreshing honesty from Romney on his way out the door. We're back after a quick break. It's clear that Republican candidates have had a bit of a difficult time talking about abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned. They're trying to rebrand their pro-life position as if something less than extreme than it actually is. And even Donald Trump seems to understand what a huge problem this is for the party. I think the Republicans speak very inarticulately about this subject. I watched some of them without the exceptions, et cetera, et cetera. I said, other than certain parts of the country, you can't you're not going to win on this issue. A fair point he is making there and one that Trump kind of proved himself during the same exact interview. We're going to agree to a number of weeks or months or however you want to define it. And both sides are going to come together and both sides, both sides. And this is a big statement. Both sides will come together. And for the first time in 52 years, you'll have an issue that we can put behind us. At the federal level? Uh, It could be state or it could be federal. I don't frankly care. Inarticulate indeed. I honestly don't know what that was, what he was just saying. The messaging is bad. The policy is bad. So what does Trump do? Well, he spews outrageous and offensive lies that have repeatedly been debunked in the same interview. The radical people on this are really the people, the Democrats, that say after five months, six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, and even after birth, you're allowed to terminate the baby. Democrats aren't saying that. I just have to Democrats are not saying that. Of course they do. That's not true. Democrats are able to kill the baby after birth. Let me talk to you. Nobody wants that. That Democrats don't want that. So you have some states that are allowed to kill the child after birth, and you can't allow that. But, Mr. President... Again, no one is calling for a child to be killed after birth. Again, Trump is not only spreading outrageous lies, he's using the most extreme language he can, purely for its shock value. And despite Kristen Welko correcting him at every turn you just saw there, that fact-checking is not necessarily what the Republican base is going to hear. Joining me now is Congressman Pramila Jayapal of Washington. She's the chair of the Congressional Progressive caucus. So I really wanted to just start right there because you've been outspoken about abortion access. What was your reaction when you heard the former president discussing abortion in that way and access in that way? Well, he was just flailing around, which is what Republicans have been doing, is flailing around because they want to push this extreme nationwide abortion ban. And 80 percent of the American people do not want that, including 65 percent of Republicans. So they're in a tough spot. They're trying to push something very extreme that caters to their extreme right of their party, but not even Republicans want that. And you could see that with with Donald Trump, you know, trying to do the thing that he always does, which is lie and, you know, say things that simply aren't true. But he himself acknowledged that they're not going to win on this issue at the very beginning. And I 
Believe it or not, Jen, I agree with Donald Trump. Yes. Republicans will not win there, on we, this You issue. had it here, the chairwoman <laughs> of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So we know you're, you're back in Washington here. We all know a shutdown is looming. Yeah. Uh, Matt Gates threatens every day to bring a motion to vacate and remove Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We've heard F-bombs being dropped in closed-door meetings. What do you say about what's happening right now with your Republican colleagues and kind of the inability to make government function? Well, that's really it. They cannot govern. And I think that is, it's it's sad. I don't take any uh, joy from this situation because at the end of the day, the fact that they're pushing this baseless, absurd impeachment of Joe Biden, the fact that they, they can't keep a speaker in the chair and they've essentially made it so that Kevin McCarthy has handed the gavel mm-hmm. to Marjorie Taylor Greene and the extreme right wing of his party, but he got nothing in return for that. Mm-hmm. They have not been able to pass 11 out of the 12 appropriations bills. And if you look at the Senate, they've passed all 12 Mm -hmm. with a bipartisan majority. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean? It means the American people are ultimately going to lose. They want to cut health and human services funding to 2007 levels. Mm -hmm. That means people aren't going to get paid. They're not going to get their child care. They're not going to get their food stamps. We're not going to have FDA inspections, which actually people care about to make sure that their drugs are good. So there's just so much of this that is going to land on the American people's shoulders if we have a Republican shutdown. And that's what it's going to be. They can't use their own majority to pass appropriations funding bills. Yeah, the impact on people is so important. Also happening, there's no shortage of things happening in Washington right now, is this bogus impeachment inquiry into President Biden. You wrote an op-ed where you said McCarthy's impeachment inquiry is a sham, unrooted in any facts or proof of high crimes and misdemeanors. Do you think Democrats should be calling this out and the absurdity of it? Should they be ignoring it? What is the right strategy? Well, we can't ignore it because I'm on the Judiciary Committee. Um, You had Jamie Raskin from the Oversight Committee. They are going to bring hearings forward. So we can't ignore it. We should go fully into the details because I think the American people understand that this is not about Joe Biden. This is about Republicans putting a shiny new object out there to distract people from the fact that they can't pass funding bills. Um, But I think that, you know, I've sat through an impeachment inquiry myself on judiciary of Donald Trump, and those were serious charges. There's 91 felony counts uh, in indictments against the former president. There just isn't anything there with Joe Biden. And even Republicans uh, are saying that, too. So I think we can't ignore it, but we can't distract from the fact that that is a distraction of the real work and the fact that Republicans can't govern. Congressman, before I let you go really quickly, there is, of course, a strike happening in Michigan right now and a huge impact on workers could have an impact on our entire auto industry. What should people know about uh, the economic impact of that? Yes. Well, two things. One, that CEO pay for these auto workers has uh, gone up by 40% in the last four years. Worker pay has gone up by 6% in the last four years. These three auto companies earned a quarter of a trillion dollars in profit over the last 10 years. And what happens to these workers is they can't even keep up with inflation. They can't pay their rent. They, they have a full-time job, but they're classified as temp workers. They don't have guaranteed pensions. They can't live. 
And it is wrong, Jen. And it's why I'm so proud of the United Auto Workers for striking, for using all the tools in their toolbox to say you can't treat us like this. This inequality is not fair. Congresswoman, thank you for covering a scope of issues with me. It was great to see you today. <laughs> thank you, Jen. And up next, Mitt Romney pulls back the curtain on the dysfunction inside his own party as he announces he won't seek re-election next year. I'll share my take on what we learned and what it means next. On Wednesday, Utah Senator and former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney announced he will not run for re-election in 2024. Since arriving in Washington in 2019, Romney has been one of those rare and quickly disappearing Republican voices in Congress who is willing to push back against Donald Trump and his strain of MAGA politics. He's a fascinating public figure who in just over a decade went from the Republican standard bearer, the nominee in his party, to an anomaly within the party he once led. But as he prepares his exit, he is speaking pretty candidly about what his party has become and his concerns about that. The same day that Romney made his announcement, The Atlantic published this piece, What Mitt Romney Saw in the Senate. It is a very good read. It's an excerpt from a forthcoming biography by author McKay Coppins, who for the past two years has had incredible access to Romney, his personal journals, correspondence, and notes. And much of what Mitt Romney describes seeing in the Senate is what we have sensed is happening behind the scenes, even those of us who aren't behind the scenes. So what is so striking about his account is that Donald Trump is not the sole problem. He describes a party of enablers who are desperate to stay in power. Republicans publicly playing their parts as Trump loyalists, but in private, they're quick to roll their eyes and ridicule him. As Romney recalls, one senior Republican senator admitting, quote, he has none of the qualities you would want in a president and all of the qualities you wouldn't. So many Republican lawmakers see what we see. It's clearly not entirely partisan to believe that Donald Trump is unfit for office. So why have so many of them stood by him time and time again? Well, Senator Romney shed some light on that as well. Prior to the the Senate trial of Trump's first impeachment, Romney says Mitch McConnell urged him to vote to end the trial as soon as the opening arguments were completed. McConnell's calculation was that keeping power was more important than anything resembling accountability. It's a similar uh, calculation that Romney watched Republicans make just a year later when they endorsed Donald Trump's election lies. Romney says Republicans like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz were, quote, making a calculation that put politics above the interests of liberal democracy and the Constitution. And in the months after January 6th, Romney realized it wasn't just them. He said, quote, a very large portion of my party really doesn't believe in the Constitution. Now, for me, it is both incredibly refreshing to hear Republican lawmakers speak bluntly about what we've all watched with our own eyes about Donald Trump, and it is also extremely frustrating. Because each time Republicans make that calculation and rationalize what is convenient over what is right, the line of what is acceptable moves further away. And we've seen where that can lead us. The calculation by far too many Republicans to enable Trump for political expediency has served to radicalize members of their own base, to the point that the threat of political violence has become very real in America. Romney details that after January 6th, during Trump's second impeachment, members of Congress were afraid to vote to convict him out of fear for their own families. 
One Republican senator in leadership was talked out of voting to convict after other members urged him to, quote, think of your personal safety. Think of your children. Let's just pause on that for a moment. Elected members of the Senate in leadership were afraid to vote their conscience because they were afraid their families would be at risk of physical harm. That is both shocking and not entirely surprising because it isn't theoretical. Election workers, judges, lawyers, and so many others have faced threats of physical violence from MAGA extremists. And what Mitt Romney, the lifelong and devoted Republican, details here is a party that's accepted those threats as business as usual. What Mitt Romney details is a party whose only guiding principle at the top is the pursuit of power at literally any cost. Hopefully, America will listen to his warning. Kevin Madden, a longtime senior advisor to Mitt Romney, joins me next. As Mitt Romney bluntly calls out his own party and prepares to step off the national stage, who better to talk to than someone who worked on both of his presidential campaigns and knows the senator quite well? Joining me now is Mitt Romney's former senior advisor, Kevin Madden. So I can't wait to read this book. I think I'm not alone. It's going to be a page turner. It's going to be a page turner. But a lot of us reading the piece in The Atlantic saw sides of Senator Romney we had not seen, maybe we suspected, but you know him well. Did anything surprise you in the piece you, that was came out in The Atlantic? I think, well, one of the things that surprised me is Mitt Romney is a very private guy, right? I know he, when you run for public office, you uh, it's a sort of invasive process, and a lot of people saw and heard Mitt Romney. But, you know, there's a lot of things about emotions and private thoughts, and I think some of the stuff that he agonizes over that he previously, you know, always kept as a close hold, um, sort of a, sort of an old-school approach, right, um, to, to that. Um and really sort of opened up. And I think genuine emotion, genuine feelings uh, and um, uh, things that he agonized over, sort of giving that some air, I think, to the public. That was what surprised me the most. I think the thing that I liked the most about the excerpt was that it talked about how he had genuine and noble intentions when he came to the Senate and has you know, use those genuine and noble intentions to do really good work on behalf of people of Utah, but also bring a statesmanship, I think. Yeah. To a lot of the national debates, whether it's been about public, uh, whether it's been about national security or the public response to COVID, but that there's a real agony. Again, I use that term because I, I hadn't really seen it in mm. public before the way I had through these excerpts about the canyon that's emerged between what people are saying publicly about the threat of Donald Trump and what people say privately. Yeah, I mean, reading it, it, it there's an anger that came across, right? Yeah. He did come. It, it makes clear he came with, with great intentions. He came uh, to work across the par- uh, party lines when, wa- when warranted. Is he angry? Is he angry that he couldn't do more to change things in Washington? I don't think— it's anger. I, there, I, I thought there was a bit of an element of a confessional to it all, which is that he was genuinely strug- struggling with um, some of the um, some of the intentions of his colleagues and wanted to sort of give them the best, see them through the best view. But then oftentimes, I think he came to the conviction that oftentimes they were not stepping up to their public role that the way they should be when it came to confronting some of the challenges that they see not only inside the party, but the challenges that the country faces if we are going to go in the right direction and that um, yeah, I think he wanted to bring bring that some of that to light. 
You know, it really struck me. We worked on opposing campaigns. Right. Um, they ran against each other. You forget how much politics has changed uh, quite a bit in that way. Lots of policy yeah. disagreements. So given Romney is one of these rare Republican voices in Congress right now, who's actually not afraid to say what he thinks out loud, not just behind closed doors. He talks about passing the torch who does he want to pass the torch to? That was one of the other genuine question marks, I think, that came out of this. Um, I think he is very cognizant of the fact that his age and his station in life right now, that, that there are some, lo- some limitations that come with that. So this idea that the people, and I think it's, it's an accurate assessment, which is that somebody has to step up from a new generation and take the country in the right direction and really give a voice to some of the threats, again, inside the party and, and voice to some of the challenges that the country faced. But when you look at the question that he asks Republicans, who is the next generation? Like, who is the next Mitt Romney? You know, when you look behind and you hear, you see some of the people that are sort of ascendant in the party, younger voices like Vivek Ramswamy, that's not a Mitt Romney sort of wing of the party. Yeah. Um, so, and there are probably more Viveks out there right now than there are Mitt Romney. So I think this is a genuine instinct that he has that's right, but it's actually still going to require the voice of a Mitt Romney and others who are Mitt Romney supporters like me inside the party to really crystallize that message and play a bigger role going forward. It is. I mean, you've been a Republican operative for a long time. I know you're out in the private sector now. What gives you hope? Is there anything that gives you hope about the future of the party? Well, uh, I, I still remain optimistic that we can make ar- we can have arguments about public policy where I can say Jen Psaki is wrong, not Jen Psaki has bad intentions for this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think increasingly we have to find forums that sort of b- provide that type of platform for people who disagree. Um, so I'm hopeful that that can continue. Um, but I do think that some of the trend lines that Mayor Romney's identified, they still do very much worry me. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. It was such an interesting read. Really showed us a lot about your former boss. You may have already known. Um, We're coming right back after a quick break. So stay with us. That does it for me today. Go Bengals. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And a reminder that you can listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. Search for Inside with Jen Psaki wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be here next Sunday at noon Eastern.